Welcome to the 21st episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics, but the joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact must use them. I'm Siskoid, I'll let you in on all the rules, but first, my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number 21, uh, from across the planet from me, please welcome Brent Brickhill. Yeah, hi Siskoid, how are you? It's, uh, we were... Looking at the time difference, it is morning here and evening there. And uh, yeah, I'm here in Australia, long-time listener to the show, and uh, look forward to um, editing with you today. And it's your first time on the network. It is my first time on the network. I do um, podcast occasionally with the Legion of Substitute Podcasters, but this is my first time on the Fire and Water Network. Well, w- welcome to our studio. It's probably an audition piece. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, we're always... We're always poaching each other's guests. Who's who? Who's editing? You got issue 21. It's the one with the Spectre, and we'll see what characters are in there. Were there challenges for you going through these particular entries? The Stalker character, I would say. He was probably a big challenge, just given the name and the implications of that name in uh, 2023. Probably mm-hmm. the other one were all the ones that started with the word space. Once I'd cracked that... I had a bit of a direction for my line, and that um, that will be revealed as we get to that part of the issue. Right. There's a lot of space opera. There's a lot of fantasy. And these aren't generally the types of books that DC puts out. There may be one, yep. uh, but it feels very retro, like at a time, different decades where these things were more you know, impactful. So there's a lot of sci-fi in the 50s and early 60s, there's a lot of fantasy in the late 70s and early 80s. But these are very rare. So here we have a whole lot of them, and we had to integrate them into our lines. I, also, I find there's no teams. No, no teams at all. And uh, I brought them. I brought them in anyway. Same for me. I addressed that uh, within the line. I yeah. had to. Yeah, and uh, the locations also fitted into that sci-fi and medieval sort of themes. So uh, that also was a bit of a challenge. But uh, no, I got there in the end. I think. Well, we'll see how we did. One more time, here are the rules. Each episode of Who's Editing will go by. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero character or team featured, as well as any non-HQ location. There is one here. We can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to, but we can only name a single villain from the issue to receive that honor. So imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other, and we so we can reboot characters, we can use any continuities version. It's really up to us titles don't have to match the entries so they're not all bundled up in the same section at the comic book shop note that each of us is pitching our own ideas so we'll sort of end up with two possible lines of books listeners you decide which books you'd actually want to read and we'll actually play that game too as we'll each have enough imaginary money to buy one imaginary title from the other editor's line Tell me, did, did you have a strategy going into this? What was it? Well, I did. I tried a couple. So um, I'm a primary school teacher here in Australia. And so one of the first things I did was actually talk to my students. And oh. um, I teach um, sort of fourth, fifth graders. So what I did was I actually gave them the list of names. And um, I asked for some of their ideas without them knowing anything about them. And as you said, there's some quite obscure characters in here. <laughs> The kids hadn't actually heard of any of these. So I got some ideas from them. I started that way, but um, they tended to be a bit like some of the titles in this book, a bit sort of generic, especially with the word space appearing a lot, or really obvious titles like Shrinking Violet. It's kind of like, what does she do? She shrinks. 
So I kind of moved a little bit away from that. You probably won't find out until we get a bit into the book exactly what my through line is, but there'll be some hints to it in some of the earlier entries. With me, like the speedy entries, and there's a couple of infiniters in there. So legacy heroes seem very natural, and it's sort of something you called out uh, at the beginning. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if you followed through with that. Uh-huh. But I left you that strategy at that point. I said, oh, that okay. was very kind of you. <laughs> well, I just didn't want to do repeats, you know, but it, it, it yep. feels very natural to this, the superhero entries anyways. And a couple of those ideas are still in my line, but, you know, I did not pursue many of them. My line is still kind of legacy-ish because I've set my entire line, and maybe you did the same, <laughs> in a space opera future where something has happened to Earth and we'll get just to know what in a few entries. So think of the line as somewhere between Star Wars and Legends of a Dead Earth, sometime later than the Legion's future. I'm not going to talk much about uh, diversity in, in this uh, particular podcast, since um, because they're almost all new creations, new characters using old names. Right. So I would tell my creative teams to design the characters with diversity in mind. I just didn't do it myself, but this issue is especially white. I think there's like one non-white character in the whole thing. It's a villain. So... Yeah, but my line will not be. It's just I'm just putting it out there that I didn't. I don't specify within the body of my pitches. So with issue 21 of Who's Who, we have to include a minimum of 17 books in our line and a maximum of 18. I'm gonna hand it off to you first, and we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, and keep our bonus villain series for the end if we have one. Uh, you just mentioned Shrinking Violet. It's obvious what she does, but that doesn't mean you had to go in that direction. You can even change the title. So what did you do? So I did. I did. Um, You're right. I did stick with the theme of legacy. So my range of titles will be a range of summer annuals and specials for DC. I do think personally that DC is all about legacy. And uh, that's what I love about reading DC comics. I'm a big Infinity Inc. fan and uh, Legion fan. My um, line is about heroes passing on the baton and building on or destroying what's gone before. So they're going to have a masthead across all the titles, and the masthead is going to be called Descendants, and that's going to be spelt D-C-E-N-D-E-N-T-S. So (laughs) um, all of the things will have some sort of legacy element to them. That said, my very first book is probably least aligned with the masthead. For Shrinking Violet, I've called the book Espionage. She's No Shrinking Violet. Uh, This book will be set in the 30th century, and rather than focusing on a legacy character, this annual is going to focus on the legacy of a former self. Sally Digby, formerly Shrinking Violet, has returned from the Legion of Superheroes to Imsk, and she's now fully embracing her lesbian identity and looks for an outlet for her now highly confident self on Imsk. She finds little challenge or adventure on Imsk, so she signs up for the Imskian Armed Forces taking on the codename Espionage in homage to her days in the Legion Espionage Squad. She leads her Imskin stealth platoon successfully through a series of dangerous missions. Salu is soon lauded as the most awarded officer in the Imskin army, and uh, her new confident and reckless attitude is present in every interaction in this annual. She rejects the advances of Ayla Rance, who tries to get her to resign and move to peaceful Winneth. She bullies Microlad into joining the suicide missions for her platoon, but her most reckless actions find her supporting fascist government factions determined to boost the planet's supply of minerals. Minerals needed to sustain the microtechnology used to support the booming population growth on Imsk. The general's target, the Braal system. 
And this tale will fill in the time between Salu leaving the Legion and the Battle of Venado Bay in the Imskbra War. It is, of course, written and drawn by Keith Giffen with script assists from Tom and Mary Bibom. You're, you're filling in the holes just before the five years later, in the five years within. <laughs> the five years, yeah. And uh, I think it was a, it was a brief storyline in, in Legion, and I was keen to know more about this character. The Shrinking Violet title was really difficult, so I had to get rid of it. <laughs> So uh, I'm calling her espionage. That's good. And um, I'm intrigued by the idea. You're the first one to ever do this where it's a, like, you know, the summer event where it's all annuals rather than monthly series. I'm looking ahead to seeing, like, I'm thinking already, okay, which ones could actually spin off? You know, the popular ones would probably spin out into their own series after this. Exactly. And DC is trying to bring in some new readers and uh, create some new um, IP. I also changed the title. I call it... Ultraviolet is the name of the book, and it stars Imskian heroes who live, like, remember, this is all centuries after the Legion stuff, right? No matter what. So it stars Imskian heroes who live on a very strange world indeed, because they are living inside a person. They've taken (laughs) refuge at microscopic size inside one of the long-lived aliens who conquered Imsk decades ago. But we don't know that from the beginning. There is eventually a crazy pullout that reveals this. And it's the new generation of Imskians, a quartet of young heroes led by a girl called Violet, who decide to question the status quo, discover the lie their parents and grandparents have told them, and eventually escape with the hope of reclaiming Imsk. But it's going to take a while, so this is a bizarre and charming world-building kind of book, until it's time to pull the rug from under the readers. I love it. Thank you. Uh, so, um, Silent Night was next. And this one I set on New Earth, which is a giant space station that contains several cities. The Silent Night is our Batman analog. Uh, Brian Kent is a newscaster by day and a paranoid vigilante by night. And as the most famous voice in the galaxy, and I I want him to be on every news feed across the entire line. Every time you see the news, it's (laughs) him. So he can't allow himself to be heard in his costumed identity. That costume is more of a dark, super sophisticated armor with red highlights, similar designs as this original medieval character. Well, the armor boosts his abilities, but not as much as people presume. Because if Kent went into media, it's because his far ancestor was Clark Kent... So he has some Kryptonian blood. Not a lot, just enough to give him a physical and sensory advantage, even without the suit. So his motivation is, like the original apparent slain, but it's also because he sees injustice every day at work. There's the reporting he wants to do, and then there's the propaganda he's forced to do by the powers that be. So he takes his fight to the top 1% who control the galaxy. So already I'm, I'm showing that like this time there's an inequity that that kind of mirrors some of the inequities today. Very interesting. So um, I went in a, in a totally different direction with Silent Night. Mine is probably much more, I guess, I guess it's got some commonalities in terms of the look. So mine is set in following the time of the round table. Britain has moved on and it's um, 1095 AD and uh The Crusades are preparing to march to release Jerusalem. Mariah Kent, descendant of Brian Kent, the first Silent Knight, finds a trunk with a silver suit of armour, a sword, a red helmet and a shield. She puts the armour on and discovers that it's a perfect fit. 
Knowing that girls can't be crusaders, she joins a troop pretending to be a fighting monk who has taken a vow of silence. The book recounts her journey across the lands and she has many adventures along the way. One of the things she does, um, and this is following the Christmas theme of Silent Night, is she meets the three African kings who gift her with powerful artifacts, frankincense to control the minds of men, a gold purse, which always holds money, a lump of myrrh, which is a resin with special healing powers. In her female guise, uh, she works as a cook for the Crusaders by night, and by day, fully armoured, she fights as the Silent Knight, using the gifts of the kings to aid her in her quest for the Holy Grail. Through the book, the Grail is found, but along with it, she encounters a glowing sphere containing a mysterious figure. Silent Knight is going to be penciled by Brent Anderson. I like the uh, I like the idea of the Crusades being in this because... There's a number of Arthurian or medieval comics, but they rarely go that way because it's it might be a sensitive subject. Yeah. But, um, you know, with a good writer, you could actually tackle those issues. What about the Silver Scarab? You said you liked Infinity Inc.? Yeah, so I really quite enjoy the um, Egyptian links to the Hawkman character, and obviously Silver Scarab is connected to the Hawkman character. So I've decided to set the Silver Scarab special in ancient Egypt. The book is about Khafre, the third son of Khufu, who was the first incarnation of Hawkman. He's given a pendant in the shape of a winged scarab carrying the eye of Horus by his father. The pendant had been sourced by Naboo the Wise, in the 26th century BCE. Um, Nabu had created several scarabs with the help of a mysterious time traveller from the 25th century who arrived in a glowing orb. One of these was the scarab used by the first and second blue beetles. Uh, the one that Caffrey received, however, was a reach scarab infused with nth metal similar to the Kaji Da, which is Jaime Rage's reach scarab. When Khufu is killed by Hathset, Khafre's older brother, Ratoises, becomes the successor to the throne. But Khafre, much like um, Prince Harry, enjoyed the freedom <laughs> of being the spare and not the heir. So he gets out exploring the streets of the city and dressed as a commoner. And while he does, he's set upon by brigands. The scarab pendant starts to shimmer and suddenly he's enveloped in a strange metallic armour. He rises off the ground and silver wings appear behind him. The brigands run and silver scarab chases after them, soon losing them in the many winding streets. However, one of the brigands drops a bag containing a vase with a strange inscription. The inscription reads, He who finds the temple of Sekhmet will have the power to destroy or save Egypt. The brigand suddenly returns and snatches the vase from his hands. Caffrey turns to catch him, but he doubles over in pain as the scarab's connection with him starts to fade and the scarab pendant drops to the ground. He looks up and the assailant is gone. What happens next will tell the untold story of the boy who will one day become the pharaoh, who will be honoured by the second pyramid of Giza and the Sphinx. The book will star Teth Adam, a time-lost Jonah, and Nabu the Wise. For the Silver Scarab special, I'm reuniting the 1995 team from Vertigo's miniseries Egypt, writer Peter Milligan and artist Glenn Dillon. Intriguing. Very Egyptophile sort of themed book, this one. Uh, and we were on the same page on this one, uh, because I'm also mixing Silver Scarab and Blue Beetle for a book I just call Scarabs. And uh, it's about the holders of the various magical and alien scarabs brought together as sort of the Green Lantern core of their time, not that there are as many or they're not spread out or anything, but each color of scarab 
including metallic colors like silver, has its own distinct powers and is held by a different personality, a different body type, etc. So I think we can have some recognizable types, like uh, there's a blue beetle who is a rookie hero, a Thanagarian silver scarab, just dressed in, in nth metal. But the group of six or so, I would, for example, have an enormous sentient beetle who is the team's warrior philosopher, but the creative team can create others. And the series straddles the line between magic and science, some scarabs being one, the other or both, and the same is true of the threats that they encounter, though the main enemy is, from this very issue, the Spider Guild. But I do want magic to be a force in this universe, even if it's an odd fit with space opera, because the reason we lost Earth was because an ancient magic was released in the universe, and that came from the Earth's very core. I'm already indicating where I'm going with the next one. I'm picking up on a lot of Legion of Superhero themes here, Cisco. I must, I must say, being a long-time Legion um, reader, I can sort of see some links to things like the Magic Wars and um, yeah. the recurrence of some of the DC artifacts in your universe. That, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I had more Drew on the mind many times, and I never put him in the, any of the stories. But yes, as a long-time Legion not just, you know, reader, but uh, blogger as well. Yeah. The issue starts with Shrinking Violet, you know, so already you're sort of on that path. So the next series is called Scartaris, and that's where that uh, release of magic actually comes from Scartaris itself. It is no longer an inner world. At some point in the past, the forces of Scartaris, no longer held back by Warlord and his allies, invaded the surface world and took it over. Its magic spread like wildfire and destroyed the scientifically advanced civilization that had reigned there, or here, for more than a millennium. Now it's all wizards, dinosaurs, and vestiges of super science that people see as magical relics because they don't understand them anymore. It's been like this for centuries, and finally, a hero rises, a new warlord, who crashed down on Scartaris while a ban on Earth was in effect, lest its wizards spread their infection, get interested in the wider universe. So it's up to this new hero, using advanced knowledge, but maybe primitive means, to either escape or rally the oppressed peoples of the planet, which gets complicated when the wizards find this crashed ship and start plants to conquer the universe. So this is essentially Warlord, uh, but there's also going to be some outer space action eventually. That's pretty much a promise. Scartaris is the, the reason why humanity had to go out into the stars at this point and Earth is no longer accessible, except in this book. And and uh, a nice link to your new Earth concept as well. And, right. Uh, my Scartaris is still underground. Mine is going to be a young animal special by DC, and the book is going to be called Cave Carson Discovers Scartaris. Oh. <laughs> On the splash page of the issue, Calvin Cave Carson and his crew tumbling out of their mighty mole, um, revealing their location to be a strangely familiar yet seemingly abandoned landscape. DC readers will recognize it as Scartaris, but it looks as if a thousand years have passed. Let's just say that the years have not been kind. Cave's friends, Bulldozer Smith, Johnny Blake, and Christy Madison, all help him to investigate what's happened to the land of the Warlord, only to discover that this land is not the only one they've tumbled into. Strap in for a wild ride as Cave and his crew take the Muddy Mole on a trip through all the subterranean worlds of the DC universe, including the secret entrance to Gemworld, a lost city of Atlantis, the Crucible, formerly ruled by Harvest, the Fortress of Solitude, and many other fascinating DC underground locations. Nowhere they travel is anything the same as they expect. 
And Christie starts to wonder if the mole is just travelling through the Earth or whether it's also travelling through time. In one of these destinations, they too come across a stranger in an unusual glowing orb. This book's going to be written by Gerard Way from Doom Patrol fame, and the artist will be Riley Rossimo. Early favourite? Uh, Early favourite. Well, sort of, yeah, I kind of thought the young animal um, idea was a fun one for this, and I um, personally enjoyed the um, recent Doom Patrol work by Jared Way. You've got your second member of Infinity Inc. to take care of. I do. Skyman slash Star Spangled Kid, depending. Yeah, okay. So I went with Skyman. This book will be just called Skyman. And this book is about Sylvester Howe. And Sylvester Howe is the son of Courtney Howe, formerly Whitmore, and Wing Howe. Courtney's long since given up being Star Woman, following the seeming destruction of the Cosmic Rod. One summer break, her 14-year-old son, Sylvester, finds the cosmic belt and costume of the first Skyman in a suitcase in the family attic and embarks on his own undercover adventures as Skyman. His father, Wing, is the perfect tiger parent. So expect some um, Chinese cultural themes in this book. And he pushes Sylvester to succeed at his grades because he wants him to get into an Ivy League college. Sylvester, however, would much rather follow in the steps of his great godmother, Mary Pemberton, and gets up to all sorts of mischief. <laughs> this book will be written by Peter David, who does great kids' titles. And, of course, the artist will be Todd Nock. Ah, oh, nice. Yes, I see it. For me, it's also called Skyman. He's the other Thanagarian hero. Actually, he's the father of the Silver Scarab that's in the Scarab's book. And unlike his wayward son, he's based on Thanagar in this super future. Uh, so with a combination of Nth Metal and the same technology that created the Cosmic Rod forever ago, he soars in the skies above the world looking for trouble to stamp down using all sorts of gravitic tricks. So I want this to be science as written by Grant Morrison doing for gravity what the Flash did for velocity. In other words, taking mm. Hawkman and sort of evolving him to DC 1 million type stuff. The twist that is that he's working closely with this planet's government. And there's a lot of politicking because different parties don't all agree on enforcing the same values, somewhat extra protection for themselves at the expense of others, etc. So I want Skyman to be caught in the middle and have to, to make hard choices uh, lest he get defunded or debadged. Can he rise above the petty infighting? I see what you did there. Maybe something you can splash on a cover. Yeah, I really like the theme of flying because I think that, um, you know, isn't it every kid's dream when you ask, you know, what superpower would you like to have? You know, the answer is so often flight. And and I think the the, the idea of exploring flight as a concept it has been done in Hawkman, but I think it, it's been underplayed. And I think the idea of playing that up is a great one. It, with the name Skyman, it just seems even more present, you know. Next up is Slam Bradley, another book set on New Earth for me. Slam Bradley is a private eye working in the lower levels of that giant city, solving crimes in a noir environment. The art really drips atmosphere, but they have science fiction elements to them. Think Blade Runner. And you've got exactly what I'm going for. So that's my very short pitch, but it's a very short entry. <laughs> so there you have it. Uh, just uh, that simple. It is. So my um, book is just called Slam. And um, I did a bit of background reading on Slam Bradley because he's one of DC's oldest characters. I think he appeared in Action Comics number one. Detective Comics number one. So that's even earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I discovered much to my surprise, because I don't follow a lot of Batman books, that he's actually in current Batman titles. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I, I found an interesting tidbit which fed right into my legacy theme, which was that uh, he has a daughter with Catwoman. And uh, so my book's about Helena Kyle, who's the daughter of Slam Bradley, and Selena Kyle, Catwoman. And uh, in in, um, regular continuity, she's already been adopted. And so I'm going to follow up on what happens after she's adopted. So she's adopted to a Mexican couple, Rosa and Felipe Santos, to protect her identity from the enemies of Catwoman and her now deceased father, Slam. Uh, She grows up in downtown Mexico City, where her favourite pastime is going to watch the Lucha Libre with her father, Felipe. After she bests a group of bullies at her school, he allows her to join an all-girls wrestling team, Las Viboras. On the team, her signature move soon becomes known as the Slam, and she quickly acquires the nickname Slam Santos. This annual will be an awkward high school angst romp, um, similar to the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle, and will be drawn by none other than Umberto Ramos, and written by Jerry Frisson, who's the scribe on Image's Lucha Libre series. I like it. I like. I'm not a big wrestling fan, but wrestling in comics, where it sort of merges with the superhero genre, and they're like a comic right now, something with power drive in it or something that I, I really want to check out. So I'm into this. I'm definitely into this. Next up is Snapper Carr, much maligned character, <laughs> but um, I don't have the same problems other people have with him. What about you? I didn't find this the easiest one because you know, he's a guy who clicks his fingers. <laughs> so um, I looked into him a bit and uh, my, my book's going to be called Snapper and Car. So Snapper Car had a brief romance during his time with the Blasters and the object of his affections was the feline humanoid Cher Jenkins. Snapper lost track of the Blasters team through some of their misadventures on Stalag 2, but he didn't know that he and Cher Jenkins had already conceived. Two was a very small number of offspring for her cat-like species. However, only two offspring arrived. With no way to find their father, she decides to name them herself, calling them Snapper and Car. They inherit both their mother's feline prowess and their father's teleporting ability. She tries to tell them about their fabled father as they grow, but she can't quite remember the details. She names their planetoid home the Hoppy Harbour and... um, (laughs) Her son, Carr, pilots their starship called the Jetta League, and Snapper causes perfect mayhem, often getting the pair into trouble. This book is going to be written by Matt Faction and drawn by Sean McManus. Uh, well, I like I like the team, certainly. And the bad puns are fine in the, in the sense that that's exactly how the blasters were written. <laughs> So that's okay. For me, this is the only character from the current day ported to my super future. Snapper Uh Car, that's the real Snapper Car. And he's the star of Snap Comics. He's essentially characterized like he was in the Hour Man series. He's the guy with all the connections, a veteran of the superhero world who never made it out of sidekick mode. And he has the teleporting power he gained in Invasion, except... He's lost control of it. So one day he snaps himself to the grocery store and he ends up in the super future. And every time he snaps his fingers, say once per arc, he's sent to some random place in that future. He can't get back home. So he makes the best of it. Wherever he goes, Snapper kind of attaches himself to the local heroes and helps out. Some have their own series, some don't. But the mood is mostly humorous, probably more humorous than their own comics. Snapper is, after all, a weirdness magnet, and all sorts of crazy things happen to him. And sometimes his knowledge of the 21st century's heroic age 
comes in handy, but not always. There's going to be some some commonalities there, Siskoid, with uh, my central titles in oh. terms of uh, the theme running through uh, my books. All right. We'll soon get there. <laughs> well, next up is Son of Vulcan. Star Trek has a planet called Vulcan, and our own solar system has a mythical planet called Vulcan that uh, is supposed to be tiny and really close to the sun. Uh, likely, it's another planet's shadow seen through telescopes. It's never been proven to be actually there. But let's imagine such a planet is there in the DCU. It's a scorched world, very close to its star. It, it wasn't always that close. Some of humanity, when they escaped Scartaris, founded a colony on this world. But it proved a bad idea. Its orbit degraded and it got too close to the, to, to the sun. The population went underground and the galaxy forgot all about Vulcan. So when the people were scared of annihilation, they prayed and they got an answer from the entities claiming to be the Roman gods. They were loose on the universe again, thanks to that magic infection we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. An antiquated culture was built around this. And then when a space woman crashes down on Vulcan centuries later, it was decided to return her to her people and send an emissary to see if rejoining the galactic community was an option. That emissary is... Wonder Woman. No, the son of Vulcan. Cho <laughs> chosen because he typified Vulcan, which is to say Roman culture. So he's kind of like the Alpha Centurion from the 90s Superman comics. So there's a clash of values, fish out of water story. There's a romance with that space woman and some fun exploring the corruptive influence of such places as New Earth. So it's Wonder Woman if Wonder Woman was more venal, more hedonistic or something. But I wanted a Wonder Woman analog for reasons that will become clear later. Mm -hmm. Intriguing. My Son of Vulcan title is called Inferno, Son of Vulcan. It starts in the in the present day DC universe and um, we see the, uh, in, the, in the book Tio Morrow, never one to come up with a new idea, decides to rebuild the robotic sibling of Red Tornado, the Red Volcano, who starred in the 2009 miniseries. He patches into this robot parts from Tomorrow Woman, Indigo, a Manhunter robot, a Kellex, a Superman robot, and even parts of Red Tornado himself. Morrow is almost ready to launch his plan when he has a heart attack and falls to the floor of his secret lab dead. We jump to the future, a thousand years into the future, and his lab is discovered by a group of Legion Academy recruits uh, while exploring an island off the coast of Metropolis. Their presence in the lab sets off the final stage in activating the android, and his first view is of the Academy recruits Nightlad and Lamprey. His first words are, mother, father. They take the android back to the Academy, where an accident sees him using his powers to save them from some falling debris. The instructors at the Academy decide that he should stay, as powers of his level are too dangerous to unleash on 31st century Metropolis. The Academy recruits nickname him Inferno. Unbeknownst to them all, he's a ticking time bomb, as T.O. Morrow has programmed death and destruction deep within his programming. This book will be by Paul Levitz, and to uh, not change things too much, it's going to be drawn by Jose Luis, who drew the recent Red Tornado miniseries. Again, some Legion links. I mean, both Legion fans. Definitely. Yeah. Now we head into... We head into space. Space. <laughs> because there's a bunch of space ones. We sure do. Space cabbie's the first one, so right away, epic. Where do you take that cab? I just didn't like this idea of space. So um, <laughs> these three titles form the central theme of my um, summer event. This is actually going to be the first book that comes out, and it's going to be the opening bookend of the Descendants line. 
It's going to be a special 100-page book, and it's going to be called Cabbies Romp Through Space and Time. Uh, on a dark night in 2522, a hover cab pulls up outside the rear of Metropolis Space Time Museum. The cabbie gets out to relieve himself in the alley and notices the rear door has been left open. He decides to investigate and starts to see some of the exhibits in the museum. Some of these exhibits will become relevant as the Descendants line advances. He spies a silver necklace in an Egyptian exhibit, a broken piece of the cosmic rod, Red Tornado's head, a luchador mask, the mighty mole machine, the holy grail, a map of the Camino, trick arrows, and suddenly he's startled by a noise. He overhears a group of thieves talking about a heist. An alarm sounds and guards emerge from the entrance area. The cabbie decides to hide in a nearby spherical object when he's startled and he leans on a console within. The door closes and the orb begins to pulse and glow. Unbeknownst to our cabbie, John Carter II, this is the same time sphere that Booster Gold stole some 60 years earlier. The special sees our space-time cabbie showing up in a variety of locations and eras, highlighting the legacy of the DC universe we know and leading into all our summer annuals and specials. Space-time cabbie helps the reader discover possible future heroes or places and even villains of the DCU. Along the way, he even accepts some fares, taking some well-known and not yet well-known DC characters along for the ride. Um, think Doctor Who for this book. Okay. Um, I lent very heavily into the Doctor Who theme. He's going to be traveling around and through different times and locations in the DCU. And uh, he's going to be accompanied by some of the, the title characters from my books, but also some other DC characters as well. All right. So this sort of introduces the line in a similar yep. way to that, whatever that JSA thing was. With the Who's Who pages, you know, they, it kind of was doing yes. that. Okay. Yeah, the Golden Age. Yep. Right, the Golden Age. For me, I see nothing wrong with Space Cabbie as is. So <laughs> we're playing it exactly <laughs> like the original strips, but with modern sensibilities. Space Cabbie picks up a fair. They've got an interesting story. Space Cabbie gets involved somehow, but remains kind of a mystery himself. That's it. Well, the only thing I'd order in terms of storylines is some world building for the Cabbie community. I think it would be fun to see other cabbies get in on the action, either as rivals or as allies. A bit like Gotham Central or something like that, right. sort of so, expanding the police, yeah. Yeah, so it's an anthology, but maybe there are bigger arcs going on in the background or something. Yeah. As for Space Museum, the Space Museum is currently based on New Earth. It uses a cast of archaeologists and scientists in three basic story setups. Either they go after some artifact, they deal with a dangerous artifact already in the museum, or retrieve stolen artifacts taken from the museum. In that cast is the descendant of Adam Strange, just to have someone vaguely recognizable. She has mostly Ronian DNA. Another recognizable figure is a Skeets-type security robot who accompanies the team. Let's call him Plato. Not just after the philosopher, but because it's skeet, as in skeet shooting in Spanish. <laughs> yep. And in deference to the original stories, uh, Tommy Parker is also part of the cast, a frequent visitor when he was a kid. He's interning with the museum's archaeology group. So this is a series that's going to track the rise of magic and its effect on science. Things inert are now becoming magically active and so forth. I can I can almost imagine Tom King writing that book. Uh, Tom King is never I never hire Tom King. <laughs> I find the writing much too depressing. But yes, I agree. It's his. I can imagine him writing Tommy Parker. Yeah, it's his of. kind of thing. I, I, it's the the thing with Tom King and I is that we love all the same characters. I just don't want to melt them. 
<laughs> so your space museum is also part of that larger event. It is part of the event. And uh, this this gets released with Cabby's Romp Through Space and Time. And you can pick it up at your comic book store um, simultaneously with the um, special in the first week of the crossovers. However, it's not a book. Oh. But rather, it's a souvenir from the Space Time Museum. Using a souvenir format, DC recounts its new history, artefacts and geography in a boxed collection which shares extra information with the readers on all the eras and worlds of the DCU, especially those attached to the Descendants line. In the box, you'll find information booklets, fold-out maps, timelines, transparency showing Skartaris before and after the fall, battle plans for the power dampener used by the Imsky and Espionage Squad, blueprints to the new red volcano, a replica of the top of the cosmic rod, a tin copy of the Silver Scarab Pendant with an inscription stating that it does not allow the wearer to fly, a map of the Camino, a Rook, a make-your-own-wrestling-mask kit, and much, much more, all tied into the summer event. Wow. So I'm going to say right now, obviously I would buy this. But yeah. I, but when, when I choose a book at the end, I'm going to choose a book. But let it be known <laughs> that if this were considered a book, if I considered it a book, I would obviously I would buy this, I would snatch this up. <laughs> but I won't. But so you know, I would. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really love Rip Hunter's um, whiteboard where that comes in. Yeah. And it's yeah. got little things all over it. And it's like, oh, where's this going to go? So it's going to be a bit like that. Oh, I like and it's it. It's going to have clues within the box without actually revealing the story. So you still have to buy all the books. Yeah. No, the Rip Hunter Blackboard, when that was a thing in Booster Gold, you know, it kept generating commentary on blogs. And so um, it was always very interesting. I even used it in a role playing game. I had. I had a Rip Hunter in there and had the blackboard and it, you know, it had all the clues to what adventures I would take the characters on. It's a very useful device. All right. Well, what does this mean for Space Ranger then? Okay. So Space Ranger is, is going to be called Space Time Ranger. Mm -hmm. And it's actually going to be the other bookend of my Descendants line. So it's going to be the final book. And we're finally going to get some clues as to who the mysterious space time cabbie John Carter II is as he arrives back in the 26th century. He brings with him his newest companions, Carr, Slam, and Bulldozer. Arrested by the science police for the recent robbery at the Metropolis Space-Time Museum, he and the others are taken to the same cell where John's ancestor, Michael Carter, was held for gambling on his own football matches. The four plot their escape using their individual skills. They recapture the time sphere and travel to the 31st century, where the sphere is destroyed in a battle between Darkseid and Monel. The four, however, survive, and Monel takes John to New Daxum to reconnect with his mother, Rani Carter, the adopted daughter of Rip Hunter, Booster Gold's son. He shares the stories of all the adventures he's had through the annuals with her as she enjoys time reconnecting with her son. But the book ends because the, his adventuring life is not yet done. And with the help of Ron Vidar, John rigs up a Mark 11 Legion cruiser by fitting it with its own internal time cube. They dub the updated craft the Wave Rider. John takes on his hero name at last, Space Time Ranger. And he, Car, Slam, Bulldozer and Rond set off to discover new corners and eras of the DCU, leaving the line open to further iterations should it catch on. Yeah, this seems to be the one for sure that, that would spin out into its own series after the event, just, just by yep. structure. For me, I, um, well, this is going to be my Justice League. Oh, cool. So that's why I needed all those analogs. Yep. I call it Justice Rangers. It uses some of the trappings of this original strip, like a secret base inside an asteroid, 
which would be in the same system as New Earth, and a ship called the Solar King, why not? But it's also using Zeta Beam technology to get various heroes to the base, wherever they may be in the universe, some who already have their own titles, Silent Knight, Skyman, Son of Vulcan, Speedy, Red Arrow, and Starboy, and a couple of characters unique to the series, specifically Rick Starr from the Century, who acts as the man in the chair and coordinates the team. Uh, and it was his his idea to get them together, and he used his father's immense financial resources to accomplish it. The, the series is sort of uh, waiting for that dear old capitalist dad to find out his funds were embezzled. <laughs> That's in the background. The trumpet-nosed, shape-shifting Krill is in here, acts as comic relief, uh, but can sometimes be useful to the group. And the team's a resident magic user, and basically the only non-white person in the whole issue, Shanka, but despite her Native American roots... She dresses more like Zatanna. She's got fishnets in the uh, in, in the entry. Uh, I'm paying you know lip service to that. So that's Silver Deer. If uh, if you don't know the her real name, yeah. Well, this this one appeals to me a lot, Cisco. I, I think it's got a bit of everything, and I, I love the world building of bringing in things like the Zeta beams and things like that. Like it's really got that sci-fi feel. As a kid, I always bought books that had lots of characters because I was getting more bang for my buck. So um, this one appeals a lot. Yeah, it's one way to get all those characters without you know focusing on any of them specifically. Next up is Spanner's Galaxy. All right, well, I never read this, but we're going to bring Spanner into the DC Universe proper, where he acts as the proverbial Spanner in the works. One of a new breed of knights meant to fight the magic infection, even if he did make it only because of nepotism. But mystical forces attack, kill the whole organization except for for Spanner, uh, so he's left causing trouble all on his own until he can find it in himself to rebuild and recruit new members to his, quote-unquote, round table. So it's an Arthurian story, but if King Arthur were irresponsible and kind of lazy. Instead of, Ex- <laughs> instead of Excalibur, uh, he's got a Shek, as per the entry, a unique weapon yep. that's kind of like a Swiss Army knife. Not the silly multi-pronged axe that seems to be in the original series, but something that morphs into any kind of melee or missile weapon, more like uh, Gwyn's from Star Trek Prodigy. If anyone knows, yeah, yeah, a bit like, bit like Guy Gardner, Warrior. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't like that comparison, <laughs> but okay. Uh, <laughs> the thing is half alive, and you'll find a way for it to spawn other weapons, other examples. His other knights need weapons as well. This is all occurring pretty far from other books in the line. The book is called Spanner's World during the first arc and origin period. Then it changes to Spanner's Galaxy as of I don't know issue seven or so, and a year later to Spanner's universe when he starts connecting with other heroes of the line. Long-range projects. What do you do with Spanner's Galaxy? This was hard. The, the name is so specific. So uh, this was a point where I was like, oh, thank God I picked Legacy. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I related it to the original as well. My book is set three decades after the original Spanner's Galaxy story. And in the book, we meet Cosmo Spanner, who's the daughter of Polaris Spanner, the the former titular character, and Mariah Kent. Now, you might have heard me mention that name earlier. Um, This is Mariah Kent, the medieval silent knight. Mariah has found herself abandoned in the Milky Way of long ago um, while accompanying space-time cabbie on one of his adventures um, through the there and then. Cosmo Spanner, 
has inherited her father's ability to castle or teleport by trading places with another sentient somewhere in the galaxy. The difference is, though, that her time-displaced mother causes her ability to be amplified, causing her not only to castle in space, but also in time. And you might that draws a link to one of your previous titles there as well, Siskoid. So a bit like your Snapper Car character, the first time she castles, she trades places with space-time cabbie. And she spends her annual zipping around the galaxy with Snapper and Carr in the time sphere. Cabby, on the other hand, finds himself having to address his abandonment of Mariah Kent on proxy with Polaris 30 years earlier. This book is um, going to be drawn by Tom Mandrake, who I changed the formula, and I can choose whoever I want. And it's going to be written by Jim Shooter. Okay. And that's why there's a rook in the Space Museum box. Aha, uh-huh, you're seeing the links, exactly. Yes, I was paying attention. <laughs> All right, well, next up is arguably the biggest character in this book, the Spectre. You know, speaking of Tom Mandrake, yep. what's, your, what's, what's the Spectre's legacy? Well, I, sort of looking through the history of Spectre, um, I realized that uh, when Crispus Allen was the Spectre, uh, he and Dora Allen had two sons, Mal and Jake. Mal is killed in um, one of the, um, I think it was the Infinite Crisis, uh, he was killed. And so this book is about Jake Allen, and he's aimless after the death of his younger brother. He blames himself for buying the gun that led to the Spectre dispensing justice and taking Malcolm's life. Jake, a Spectre of his former self, and that will be the title of the book, Spectre, wanders the world looking for redemption. He visits Buddhist monasteries in Tibet. He joins the monks at Nanda Parabat. He goes walkabout with Aboriginal elders in Australia. And he walks the Camino in Spain. He finally arrives exhausted and alone at the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. He falls prostrate on the floor and sobs, asking God for peace. God is listening, and the spectre needs a host. Jake becomes the spirit of redemption and embarks on a mission to help the lost and repentant. Mike Grell will take on the art chores, and Tom King is scribing. So it can be depressing. <laughs> this is going to be depressing, this book. This is going to be the deep title. Um, but I do like the twists. <laughs> lots of religious themes, lots of discovery of different religion and seeking of self. Well, I'm glad you went dark. Or sad, because yeah. I went the other way. Like, when I was thinking of going the legacy route, this was going to be a, a true legacy book. And now it just has to happen in the super future, I guess. But it's Kid Spectre. It's a comedy series starring a tween version of the Spectre who operates in that time frame. And his pal, Dead Boy, an equally useful <laughs> version of Dead Man. And both characters were introduced in the Ambush Bug role-playing module for Mayfair Games' DC Heroes RPG, Don't Ask. <laughs> and, and I've wanted to see them in comic print ever since. They're kids. They get into all sorts of trouble. But that's only because they died young before they could acquire any wisdom. Kid Spectre still needs to take revenge on the guilty, but he's more of a prankster than a killer. So not somber or tragic heroes. They're actually having a lot of fun doing what they do. You know, so this is my, my big humor book. And it's based on the Spectre. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Absolutely love the direction you've taken that in. I love the idea of Dead Boy. I think uh, I can imagine Dead Boy in, inhabiting different people's bodies and, and um, you know, some of them being older and how he would deal with that. or And they'll be like kid-like. A woman and how a kid would respond to that. Yeah, fascinating. I love it. Speedy. We've got two versions. My first one is a book actually called Speedy, the female heroine. She's not just an amazing archer. She's also the flash of her era. 
shooting arrows mm-hmm. at super speeds. We may have some parallels. Oh, okay, here. interesting. <laughs> uh, so that puts him on par with futuristic laser guns and such. In design, uh, she takes after the Speedy from the Arrow show. We can even call her Thea, I think. And so she's the mm-hmm. sister of our next entry, the Red Arrow. More on him in a minute. Her story is that she really wanted to be a superhero like her brother, but he didn't want her to be in harm's way, and he refused her even when she showed she was just as good as him with a bow and arrow. So she secretly tries to get an edge, and using her research on her own age of heroes, she tries to give herself powers. All of her attempts fail until she reproduces the Flash's electrochemical access to the Speed Force, Except all those other attempts resulted in the creation of villains or the release of some sort of evil forces, Hmm. like when she went to Oa and released Parallax, or shouted Shazam and activated a Batson who should never have had those powers, or various radioactive accidents that dosed someone else, etc. Her brother's going to be really angry about this, so she uses all her speed to try and fix what she's broken before he ever finds out, and only then she'll be ready to audition for him again. So this... Uh, has a fun twist, basically doing secret identity stuff when the secret is kept from another hero. Uh, And they're both in the Justice Rangers, you might have noted, Mm. but she's gotten all the members to promise they won't tell him that she's on the team. So up up until now, they've managed to keep them apart. Uh, But eventually... (laughs) A bit like the old Justice League missions, you know, you're going to Egypt and you're going to... New York. Right, and <laughs> he doesn't know there's this other member, or you know, or doesn't. Maybe she's on the the roll call. I love it. Speedy. I don't know who and that is. And she also sounds like a real bullet gate character. So you know, really not thinking before acting, which I think really fits the name as well. Yes. Uh, so that's my first Speedy. I guess I'll keep my second. Well, not my second Speedy is actually Red Arrow. I'll keep him uh, until I hear your ideas for the two archers. Two archers, and well, maybe they're archers. The first book is going to be called Speedy Couriers. And um, this book is about Leanne Harper. With with my research into the legacy, I thought she was dead, this this um, character in DC Comics. But apparently, post-rebirth, she's back in continuity. And she's in the Catwoman title. And she's known as Cheshire Cat. Okay. But I'm going to call the, the book Speedy Couriers. So Cheshire Cat and her friends use their courier service to deliver messages and items to the mob bosses of Gotham. All the while, they're gathering intel for Catwoman and her team. Leanne still doesn't know who her parents are, but clues like her Cheshire Cat mask and the name she thought of for her bike delivery company should be beginning to add up. So Leanne is is an amnesiac and she doesn't know about um, Cheshire or um, her father, um, Roy Harper. During the annual, she's finally found by her father, Red Arrow, or Speedy as we as we currently know in the DCU, on the streets of Gotham. When they finally cross paths and all is revealed, strangely, Roy defends Catwoman for keeping her identity secret. Uh, this book's going to be written by Tom Taylor and drawn by Scott Godlewski, who uh, did the recent JLA Legion miniseries. Right, right, right. So that's my first Speedy. So, um, you know, she's going to have this this sort of mystery that, you know, her memories are going to come back over time and we're going to see little flashes and links in the things she's doing to her childhood. The second book is just going to be called Speedy. My Speedy 2 is set in the future we know as Kingdom Come. Irie West forms a strong bond with her dad's teen titan friend Roy, now Red Arrow. Roy reluctantly takes her under his wing, explaining to her that he's hardly a role model to look up to. Things between Roy and Wally remain frosty following the events of the sanctuary. 
Wally did kill Roy after all. With his help, Roy's help, Irie West starts to modify her kid Flash costume to incorporate some weaponry into crossbow-like gauntlets. These include some knockout arrows, paint arrows, and homing arrows. Then the dark side incident happens, and Roy is gone. Inconsolable, the Teen Titans suggest to Irie that she homage her mentor by taking the mantle speedy. This book's going to be written by Mark Wade and drawn by Jerry Ordway. Oh, nice team. Let me talk about my Red Arrow series. Where did you go? I want him to be the big hero of New Earth. So mm. he's my Superman analog in a way. Where the Silent Night works in the shadows, Red Arrow wants to make the news feeds so he can give hope to the oppressed. Very much modeled on Robin Hood, or I guess Rocket Robin Hood. Yeah. So he's a master archer with all sorts of tech attached to the arrowheads. But he's also built a good group of merry men around himself and isn't worried about his secret identity. Everyone knows, basically, that he was a rich kid who decided to turn his back on the corporate community when he inherited his father's money and basically turned his tech empire into a machine to fight tyranny. So we got corporate cops always after him, his team, his last remaining family, which is to say his kid sister Speedy. But thanks to the population's favor, he can keep one step ahead of them. So seems like there's never any witness as to which direction he's gone whenever the police ask, you know. So he's a very popular hero. In that way, he's Superman. But really, he's Green Arrow. I mean, if we're doing the JLA one-for-one one comparison, he's Green Arrow. But I want him to have the, the big profile like Superman does. I love it. That brings us to Stalker, the one that you had trouble with. Yeah. I... I didn't. I love the concept of a guy who sells his soul for warrior skills, then spends all his time killing the devil's worshippers so he can finally regain his soul from a depowered devil. So same thing. It just happens in a space opera environment. Uh, we can also tie it into the DCU a little better by making the Elder God here be worshipped by the Dark Circle. Uh, which has survived mm -hmm. to this era as a fairly pervasive dark religion. Because when magic returned to the universe with Skartaris, people suddenly started practicing the dark arts, which gave the dark circle something to rally around, strengthening demonic entities like Durgirth, however you want to pronounce that, uh, which I might possibly change to Neron you know, for the purposes yep. of this series. Think science fantasy Punisher for this one. So you've stayed dark. Well... I had trouble with this one. Not loving the idea of having a stalker being a DC comic. I decided that uh, he had to do a different kind of stalking. So um, in my stalker title, Jed Fisher is an MI6 agent. Enemies of the state have snatched his wife and three children from their Midlands home while he was on a mission in Karak. Jed is an expert in disguise and a talented tracker. His ability to master any weapon was developed by his former quartermaster, Alfred Pennyworth. Jed embarks on a mission to track down the kidnappers in the hope of rescuing his loved ones before the ransom deadline is met. Each chapter of the annual will see the clock ticking down towards zero hour. This spy tale will rival any James Bond or Jack Reacher novel. Jed's first clue is a mysterious stone tablet with the words de Gerth carved into it. Art will be my Mitch Gerrards and the story by Scott Brian Wilson, who worked on the Pennyworth book. Yeah, so it's kind of an outgrowth of that. Interesting. Yes. 
It's is it still called Stalker? It's still called, it's still stalker. called stalker. I mean, we could probably change something to call it like he stalks the night. He stalks some something, you know. Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or stalker MI6 agent, I thought, or something like that. <laughs> this was not my favorite title. No, I, I get it. With this one. <laughs> I get it. What about Starboy? Back to the Legion. Yeah, well, I, I originally when I approached this Discord, I said, Oh, great, have you got any Legion ones coming up? And uh, you you'd said that Shrinking Violet and Starboy were in this one. But I decided not to go in that direction at all with Starboy. So my Starboy is the son of Jack Knight and the Mist. Nice. Their son is called Kyle, and um, Jack gave up his role as protector of Opal City four years ago. His son has started to manifest both cosmic and mist-like powers and is able to transform himself into an incorporeal form resembling a boy-shaped starfield. He and his pet Bobcat, called Bobs, find themselves exploring the world through the eyes of a five-year-old and his companion. This book will be full of philosophy, hidden in humour, put together as one-page newsprint-style stories drawn by none other than Chris Eliopoulos, who was the artist on Franklin Richards' Son of a Genius. And it's going to be written by Bill Watterson, writer of Calvin and Hobbes. Wow, okay. Well, as long as we're dreaming. Yeah. <laughs> so think youthful, youthful humor with a, with a hint of philosophy. Right. It's your kid Spectre. Yeah, in a way it is. Yeah, I see yeah. Kid Spectre as having that kind of art as well. So my Starboy, I mean, you still had like these links to James Robinson's Starman. And I went that same way. That was also in my mind during this particular pitch. Because Earth is in shambles. New Earth is a corporate dystopia, so I wanted a planet where it was nice to live. And that planet is called the Opal. Uh, It's an Earth colony Uh that has found its way back to a Legion-era utopia, and Starboy is its hero. He uses powers akin to the Legion Starboy's original set when they were close to Superboys. So in a way, he is the Superman of the, the Justice Rangers. And he's powered by the Opal Star. That's where he got his codename. Among my obvious links to James Robinson Starman, we have Shades, shadow demons that followed the colonists from Earth as regular threats. Uh, We'll also have invasions from the outside because everyone covets the shiny opal. Starboy is his world's champion and he's well taken care of, but what he really wants to do is live a normal life. So he's always sneaking out of the compound and trying to hang out with his friends, which I, I would vaguely base on other heroes of Xantu from the Legion books, Atmos, Monstrous, the brother and sister kid Quantums, but without yep. powers, of course. And uh, and doing so under a secret identity. So he's got all of this going on as well. His handlers are at wit's end, uh, which provides the necessary subplots. Fantastic. So that's the end of the main entries. We could each have a bonus entry, a bonus series from another entry. It was hard for me to fit any of the characters left in this Rocket Age version of the DCU. So I did. I decided against it. Very rarely have I done this, but I don't have mm. an extra series. What about you? I do have an extra series. So um, my bonus book is called The Many Lives of Solomon Grundy. Oh, okay. Cyrus Gold, the original incarnation of Solomon Grundy, was killed in Slaughter Swamp, tragically forever cursed to die and be resurrected over and over again, randomly reborn into something new. Good, bad, smart, innocent, an infinite number of possible combinations. The Descendant of Solomon Grundy is Solomon Grundy. Of course. Always reborn on a Monday. Space Time Cabbie meets multiple versions of Solomon Grundy as he travels through this annual from the 1940s to the 2020s and beyond. Some are intelligent, some psychotic, some brutal, some kind, some cruel, some want to be alive, some want to die. 
Guest appearances in this book include Alan Scott, Green Lantern, Angleman and Star Sapphire from the Secret Society of Supervillains, Lex Luthor and the Injustice Society, Swamp Thing and the Gentleman Ghost, Jade and Obsidian, and Blue Starman Mikhail Thomas and Jack Knight. This book is made for James Robinson, and he pens it with art by a variety of DC greats, each suited to the nature of that version of Grundy. Nice. You know, if I'd had, you know, an extra series, it would have been Solomon Grundy because he can survive to that super future. And I decided against it, but I feel like, yeah, your, your series kind of almost fits into my line. Yeah, it almost would. So there we go. We finally, we follow the now well-established tradition that states that we have only enough money to buy one series from the other editor's line. Which one will it be, Brent? Okay, well, I was really, I was quite intrigued by your team books. I really like the sound of scarabs and uh, the parallels to the Green Lantern core with the colors and the, the different characteristics of the scarabs. And I also liked your um, Justice Rangers concept, which was clearly a world-building title. But I can't go past Kid Spectre. I think this would be the book I would pick up off the shelf. I, I love the idea of um, Dead Boy, a youthful look at what's often a serious topic. I love the idea of them being pranksters, dealing out God's reckoning. Nice. So uh, that would be my book, Kid Spectre. I never name any creative teams because I'm really bad at that casting creatives, and it probably will always be the same people. But there's always like one book that in the back of my mind I'm going, well, I probably would write this one. Like, there's one of them yeah. I would write myself. And I think Kid Spectre was the one. I hope you like my writing. As for yours, well, I mentioned a lot of the ones that I liked, but ultimately, I have to pick up Slam, the, the Luchador book, I think has the most interesting, for me, setting and type of action. And I really want to see what becomes of this. Although you had a lot of great creative teams across the board. Since it's all annuals anyway, it's not a monthly book. That's right. They're all annuals. Yeah, they're just yeah. one-offs. Yeah, I could buy a bunch. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping a series is going to spin out of some of these books, you know, as, as DC often does. That uh, Hopefully some of these will be lasting and picked up by other creative teams. Well, especially the ones that are superhero action. You know, those, those are the ones that DC would probably go for, whereas some of the other, you know, like a medieval story or whatever, that's interesting for an annual, but Probably DC wouldn't see it as commercial enough to go yep. on, although I really like that Silent Night series. I, I'd probably be in the minority in terms of buying power. The one I would enjoy writing the most would be Cave Carson Discovers Scartaris. I think uh, it would be a lot of fun sort of having some sort of book going through different places and interacting with different um, underground characters in DC. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I think so too. Okay, well, dear listeners, it's time to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? And if you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? And if you like this content, think about visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, like Diablo Frank, who sponsors this show. I hope you had fun, Brent. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, Discord. It was uh, a real romp. <laughs> a romp, yes. Is there anything you want to... Oh, well, you know, I certainly um, I appear sort of semi-regularly on the Legion of Substitute podcasters podcast which you can find at LOSP podcast on Twitter or Legion of Substitute podcasters on Facebook um, and I'm also on Twitter at Brento 3000 and you might get the reference there Cisco I think so thanks for trying the experiment with me thank you for having me until next time then who's editing we, we are, are. <laughs>
And we had people who told us, you don't want to do the Spectre. Uh, no one can do the Spectre for more than six to eight issues it's because he's too powerful. You either have to reduce his powers. No, we don't have to reduce his powers. There are certain visuals that you associate with the Spectre, mm -hmm. and they're huge visuals usually. And if you don't do those, you're not doing the Spectre. You're not giving the reader what they have come there for. 